Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. And just to update you, thanks in large part to many of you, uh, we've been able to purchase a new home in central Missoula. And there's a lot of work ahead of us when it comes to making another warehouse our church home. And you can continue to contribute to remodel and renovation funds at achurchbuilding.com. But we just want to express to you how grateful we are for your support. And we hope that this resource you're about to listen to will be a blessing for you as well. If you guys would just bow your heads with me once more, uh, we'll dive into our sermon today. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you um, for all the things you've given to us. And as we look at, um, we continue our series in the book of Proverbs, we examine how God, does, you desire to uh, exhume every part of our life and to pull it not into the sphere of practicality, but the sphere of redemption, um, where things work well when lived out according to your purposes. Um, not because you like order and structure, because you designed and you are what is good for us. And that through the cross, you've won us, um, not just to a life that works well, but to a God who works all things. Jesus, we thank you for your mercy. Bless our time together in your word this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. So we live in an age where uh, we have grown to appreciate goods and services that are crafted with care. In fact, when you purchase something that has that wonderful adjective of craft in front of it, whether it's a food or a drink or clothes or furniture, you've grown to expect something nice, something more. A factory-produced piece of furniture might look the same as a crafted piece of furniture or someone from a, something from a craftsman workshop, but when it has the adjective of crafted, you have the assurance, and to a degree you pay for the assurance, that every joint and juncture, every seam, every piece of lumber has been inspected, carefully examined, and skillfully honed for quality. This is in contrast to imagine, you know, your pre-packaged fast food delivery systems where it's already made, you're just heating up, you're throwing it together, you're getting it out as quickly as you can. Or some of you who think you can just take out a pre-packaged pod and put it in a mystery machine and drink coffee that's supposed to taste like coffee. Regardless of what it tastes like, it's expedient. It's at the touch of a button. And many of us don't purchase craftsman products, not because we don't think they're good or we don't like them, because they're generally more expensive. It takes more time and detail and resources to assure quality and to assure purity. But as we've been working through the book of Proverbs, we've encountered, whether we know it or not at this point, we've encountered craftsmanship everywhere. In one sense, we've seen that God has woven wisdom. God, as the master craftsman, has woven his wisdom into our world. But more than that, the Hebrew word for wisdom, hokmah, is a word in other places of the Old Testament actually references artists and craftsmen. And there, when describing them, it describes their work as hokmah, but it's not just that their work is wise, it's translated their work is skillful. Wisdom makes things crafted. 
Wisdom makes things skillful. And what Solomon is showing us is that we have access to craftsmanship without the burden of monetary cost. We have access to quality and comfort, which any of you today, regardless of what is in your bank accounts, can come and have. And yet, even though there's not a dollar assigned to it, it's not without cost. So what is the cost of pulling this craftsmanship not only from God into your life, but of living your life with the wisdom of a craftsman. It's one of the things we're going to look at today. The cost is thoughtfulness. It comes at the cost of considering wisdom, that is, pondering God's truth, but then not just looking at it, but living in light of it. And today we're going to examine how it is that we craft our responses to our world with a similar level of quality. As we've moved on in Proverbs, there's this middle section where it becomes more and more individual and less kind of concentric passages that build on each other. And at this point, we're going to kind of look at a passage, but we're looking kind of thematically through Proverbs as well as to what Proverbs says about our words. At almost every juncture probably even of your morning already at 10.30, the world is, in, is causing you to communicate, to articulate, to respond, to retaliate, to counsel someone, to comfort someone, to comment on something, to like something. But are your words and the responses of a world that is inviting you to respond, are they crafted with care? Do our responses to the world resemble the care and quality of a chef who wants to meticulously create and prepare food that is delicious? Or are we prone to respond to the world's request for what we have and what we think and what we love with simply what is most quick and expedient in our lives? Craftsmanship, when we encounter it, benefits everyone. And God is offering to you the wisdom of a craftsman free of cost if only you would do the work of examining what God himself has said about his wisdom and his word. And today, our primary text we're going to look at is what uh, Rob just read for us, Proverbs 15, verses 1 through 7. But more broadly, it's going to kind of be looking at all of Proverbs 15, and then even more broadly to be looking at kind of what Proverbs is talking about in general when it comes to our responses to our world. And our primary goal today is it's simple. It's to examine Proverbs and to learn, this is going to be what we're going to examine today, how we might be thoughtful with our words. How will we be thoughtful with our words? And we're going to see four points for us to consider this morning that Solomon is going to give us. First, he wants us to consider the desires of our hearts. Then he's going to call us to consider the wisdom of God. And then there's going to be two points of application at the end, where we consider when not to speak. And then lastly, when we consider when we do speak. And here is why... We need Solomon's crafted wisdom today. When I say our world demands us to respond to it, I mean our world is constantly trying to communicate out of you your words and more importantly, your affections. How many of you on your phone, after you've eaten somewhere, leave and you get a nice notification from Google or from Apple asking you to review where it was you were? People want to know what's in your heart. 
what you think, what you love. And this is constantly happening. And this has led to two kind of intertwined situations in our culture today, which are, I think, a little bit unique even in the context of history. Very rarely uh, can we actually say with truth that this is a unique moment in history because history is always unique. It's progressive. It's happening as we're here. Every moment of history is a unique moment. And yet there are two things that are, I think, genuinely unique. And maybe someone could come and we could have a conversation afterwards to expose my folly. I'm good for that too. But the first is the amount of our words. We live in a technological age where access to words and the publishing of words is unprecedented. From blogs to social media to TikToks to podcasts to Kindles, we are surrounded by it. But more than that, the barriers of communication are removed. Even in like not the too distant past, in order for people to see or care about your words, you either had to be an expert in your field or you had to personally know that person and be in a space where they could come and communicate to you. But with the internet today, everyone's an expert. <laughs> with the internet today, I'm not confined to just the people in my home who have to hear me pontificate on things. I can pontificate openly everywhere. Words abound. They are incessant. They are everywhere. And what's interesting is the amount of voices have just multiplied for you to respond, not just with your words, but with your affections. And this is the second part that's intertwined here. Is that not only has the amount of words increased, but so too has the amplitude of the words we're using. Because there are so many, many words... And because behind our words is ultimately the affection of our hearts, our culture and our own inner self often equates being heard to being accepted. Which means, if you want to be accepted, you need to be heard. And if you want to be heard in an ecosystem where words are everywhere, you need to have bigger words, louder words, bolder words, more liked words, more retweeted words, more clickbaity words, all of the words. And if you think about it, when we look just at the snapshot of where we live at this moment, kind of online, the gauge of which our communication is gauged is no longer based off of its quality or its truthfulness. It's gauged off of the effect it has on others. Is it liked? Is it hearted? For those who lived in the early era of Twitter, is it favorited? Is it shared? And to a degree, I came from the journalism world, whether they're sharing it because they like it or hate it, it doesn't matter so long as they're engaging with it. And this leads to a frenetic pace of us trying to gain acceptance and to accomplish something with our words where the bar is always moving. If you want to be accepted in our culture today, perhaps you yourself have felt the weight of words. And you've wondered if what you affirmed or denied yesterday will be good enough to bring you acceptance in what you affirm or deny tomorrow. If we play with words by the world's standards, you can, and you can do it well, but it is never ending, and it leads to exhaustion. 
And if you're here today and you feel that exhaustion as you trying to pursue it, or you're overwhelmed by that exhaustion of you constantly hearing it, this is why God's word is good news. Proverbs today is going to share with us a different sort of wisdom, God's wisdom. There is hope in our communication-centric society, and that hope is that you can first find acceptance in the gospel, and therefore you consider how your words and your communications are distinct from the world. But in order to do this, we humble ourselves and we look at what we'll see later on. The Apostle James says is wisdom from above. We submit ourselves to God's words. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read Proverbs 15, 1 through 7 for us. And as this is going to be our primary home, we're going to kind of be jumping around a little bit more than we normally do. I want you to listen to Proverbs 1, verse 7 about what it's saying about your words, your communication, your responses the God who exists and the people who we live with. So here is Proverbs 15, 1 through 7. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fool pour out folly. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. A fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent. In the house of the righteous there is much treasure, but trouble befalls the income of the wicked. The lips of the wise spread knowledge, not so the hearts of fools. So we see a typical thing, We've learned that Solomon does in Proverbs, and he's using these contrasts. And we're seeing these contrasts of good things with words and bad things with words. And if we want to be on the positive side of these contrasts, we need to start where Solomon starts, which is our first point today, which is to consider the desires of our hearts. Before we talk, before we communicate, before we retweet, share, or comment, we consider the desires of our hearts. And I've said this before, that Proverbs read fast and they think slow. That's the difficulty of reading Proverbs. And this is a good example of why we need to slow down and read what is quick to read. Because if you notice, and so this is just practicing Bible study, let's look at these verses, these seven verses, and let's notice all the places it's talking about either hearing or communicating something. So in verse 1, you have a soft answer and a harsh word. Verse 2, there's the tongue of the wise, the mouth of the fool. Verse 3, we see a gentle tongue. Verse 4, there is some sort of heeding or listening to this instruction, these words coming from the outside. And then in verse 7, we have the lips of the wise. So we have mouths, lips, tongues. They're everywhere in this text. And in verse 3, what Solomon is doing is he is now going to say, in light of all of these lips and these words and these tongues, God is concerned with all of them, every last one. Now, if you were to say, God is concerned with all of the things you say, what part of the body do you think he would speak of? Probably our ear, which is where most of us hear. <laughs> but look at what Solomon says. Amidst all of these mouths and lips and tongues, look at verse 3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. He doesn't say the ears of the Lord are in every place. 
But it's common for the Old Testament prophets to speak to God's ear, to say, incline your ear, O Lord, to our plea. Instead, he says, in relationships to our words, God's eyes are in every place, watching those who are good and following God's law, watching those who are bad and living apart from God's law. And what's the point he's making? Well, if we continue to read in Proverbs chapter 15, Solomon's point becomes a little more clear. Look again at Proverbs 15, verse 7. The lips of the wise spread knowledge. Not so the hearts of fools. Look at verse 26. The thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord, but gracious words are pure. Verse 28. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours, for, pours out evil things. So do you see the connection Solomon is making here? Is in each of these verses there is an internal and external connection to our communication. There is the desires of our hearts and the words of our mouth. So therefore, Solomon communicates God's knowledge with words with the metaphor of his eyes instead of his ears as if to say, God doesn't need to hear your words because he sees your heart. He sees what's inside of you. Our words are an extension of our hearts. Now, this isn't new for us. It's not novel. It's not new. We've seen this a lot in the book of Proverbs. And even our culture gets this. When our culture uses language like hate speech, they are tying an external reality to an internal problem. That these words are rooted not in policy. They are rooted in a disdain of a certain people group. That's what they're trying to do, regardless of who they're ascribing it towards. But Jesus does this too. In Luke chapter 6, verse 45, Jesus himself says that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. But this is where Solomon wants to practice this, us to practice this thoughtfulness all the more. Because when we talk about the heart-mouth or the heart-word connections, most of us affirm this. And yet, we affirm it in a sense where it just kind of becomes this... Uh, reactive, unconscious response that we're sorry we have, but we understand it exists. Because we really can't change what we love. Now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, when we are regenerated by God, he slowly conforms our affections to love what God's affections are for. But this, though it takes human effort, is not a human-powered event. It is done in God's timing with God's grace as we submit to God's long-term change in our lives. But we cannot just say to each other, you need to love differently. I can discipline my children for not eating their vegetables. I cannot say, go to your room until you love cauliflower. Because <laughs> they will never come out. At least not for a really, really long time. And certainly with not the input of tasting cauliflower for me. I disrupt the ecosystem. And so when we talk about our words being an extension of our hearts, we get it, we understand it, we've said things out of hate and hostility, and we're just like, man, I wish I could change what I love, but I can't. And so hopefully someday it'll go away. But for the time being, I'm just going to, you know, try to be more cautious about what it is I'm saying. How do we change what we love? But in Hebrew literature, the word heart is more than just the seat of affections, in the Hebrew worldview, the heart was the seat of the whole, of the mind, of the thoughts, of the will, of the volition. 
It was where your knowledge was stored, which means that our words are not simply a knee-jerk reaction to what we love. Your words are actually a description of the discipline of your mind. While you might not be able to change what you love, wisdom here cautions you to think about what you love. You can be thoughtful about what you think. You can choose, Solomon says, to ponder. Look back at verse 28. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. The heart ponders. That seems weird to the Western world where the mind is the seat of the intellect and the heart is the seat of Netflix soap operas or something. But here, Solomon's tying them together. And so what do we ponder? What does he want us to think about? And this is what the rest of Proverbs goes to show. And in 1962, J.L. Austin wrote a book called How to Do Things with Words. And his thesis in this book was that none of us communicate simply to communicate. The goal of any sentence you've ever uttered, the goal of any tweet you've ever put together, any note you've left for your boyfriend or girlfriend, was put together not just to describe reality, but to actually cause something. For example, think of a baby. They don't wake up and just say, today, more than anything else, I want to cry and grunt. I just feel that God gave me these vocal cords and these muscles for the purpose of simply crying and grunting. So why do they cry and grunt? To convince you of what they want. To articulate without language, in a language, their needs to cause you to respond. As another example, my wife uh, says often, she's a water bottle people. Some pe- how many of you are water bottle people who carry water bottles everywhere? Yeah, I, we have cups. They exist. They're great. Put them in the dishwasher. They come out new. Um, but she often leaves her water bottle somewhere. And I'll hear from another room. And she says, Tyler, my water bottle is on the island and it's empty. She is not just trying to adequately describe the space-time continuum in my home. What she wants me to do is get the water, fill it up, and bring it to her. Even a teacher who is teaching a class, his goal is not simply to transfer knowledge. His goal is to transfer knowledge that causes something, that he keeps his job, that they pass the exam, that bridges get built, that people can safely drive across, that food can get cooked, that doesn't kill people. Behind every act of your communication online or in person is not only a perception of what you desire, but actually the results of what you think that communication act will accomplish to get you what you want. Our speech tries to do things. And all Solomon's doing is trying to say, are you thinking about what you're trying to do? The world says, what are you communicating? The Bible says, why are you communicating? Solomon warns of incomplete thoughts in this area in Proverbs 29, verse 20, where he says this, Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There's more hope for a fool than for him. For those of you who've been reading along in the book of Proverbs, the fool is not a very hope-filled man. (laughs) And he's saying, oh, the fool looks good compared to you. Who is quick and rash and unthoughtful with his words. 
So when you're about to speak, do you consider what it is you want? Not just what's going on, not just what's provoking it, but why are you saying what you're saying? What do you think that comment will produce to satisfy what you desire, what you need? And the truth is, if we boil it down, these are easy to identify. We speak because we want to vindicate ourselves from others who have a lower view of us. We speak because we want to comfort ourselves about what we have. We speak because we want to destroy our enemies who oppose us. We speak because we want to be accepted and told by others that our lives matter and have meaning. When you're about to speak, what are you speaking for? That's a great conversation to have with your roommate or your spouse in the car home. <laughs> when I said this to you the other day, or when you said this to me the other day, why did you say that? What did you want in return from that? What did your heart hope to accomplish? You see, our words don't only communicate what we love, they communicate what we want. And while we might not be able to immediately have a light switch of love in our hearts, we can begin to ponder what we want and why we want it. And that's the first step here. Is Psalm is saying, consider in your heart what you want and why you want it. And that's the first step. But that's not the last step. Considering what our hearts want and what our minds are thinking is only half the battle. The other half is to do what Solomon is doing here, which is to take what we want and why we want it and to bring it into the wisdom of God to say, what does God say about this want and this desire? And this is our second point today. This is considering the wisdom of God. And so you've done this work you're thinking back when your spouse asked you to do something and you had that perfectly crafted response that was just going to undo her. Just enough to where she's a little frustrated, but not enough to where you know you have to like openly repent for it. We know that level, right? We play with it. We send it out in life. It hits. We kind of regret it immediately. And, but now we're thinking, okay, why did I do that? What did I want? What does God say about that want? We bring it back and we pull it into God's perspective. And this is what the wise man is doing with his words in this text. Verse 3 shows us that God is watching. God is seeing not just his people's hearts, but everyone's hearts. And knowing this, the wise man then turns to that God to assess all of his life. Look at Proverbs 15:2. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly. The mouth of the wise man doesn't point to his own wisdom or his own knowledge. He is commending to you. He is commending to all who hear God's knowledge, God's word. It's as if the wise person is the world's most prolific Yelp reviewer. He says at every step, God's wisdom is sure. I commend it to you. His perception of the world is accurate. Look at it. His goodness is always good. His word never fails. Believe this knowledge. You see, we have a natural tendency when the world is trying to draw out of us responses. We have a natural tendency to communicate about something 
from the way in which we relate to that something. I understand that's a really unhelpful sentence, and maybe I need help with my words, but I'm going to explain that here for a second. Which means when someone begins to talk to us about sports, you begin to think in terms of your relationship to sports. Like saying, I have no idea what you're talking about. Or saying, that might be good for your team, but I am a Titans fan or a Grizz fan, and I hear all of that knowledge through that identity. When people begin to talk about kids or marriage, you begin to gauge what you think and how you respond from your own perspective of being single or married or having kids or no kids. When people begin to talk about politics, you begin to think about what the political party lines are based off what group you align with and what group you oppose. But the challenge of thoughtful wisdom is that we actually challenge these identity categories as the chief identity we have. The goal of the wise man is to view all of our responses, not through the pre-programmed languages of our tribes, but to view all of our responses through the category of God's salvation to us through Jesus Christ. It looks at what God says about us and about our circumstances before we look at what we say about our circumstances. Wisdom calls us primarily to speak primarily out of an understanding of our relationship and identity in God. And so where do we find this sort of vision correction? How does, the, the, how does Solomon ground himself in this identity? Look at Proverbs 15, verse 4. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. A gentle person's tongue is a tree of life. Where have we seen this before in the book of Proverbs? Solomon is pulling something back from uh, Proverbs chapter 3. And in Proverbs chapter 3, he's extolling lady wisdom, which is this representative of God's wisdom in this world, life from God's perspective. We see in the New Testament that wisdom in its fullest is Jesus Christ, the word who became flesh. And look at what he says about lady wisdom in Proverbs 3, verses 17 and 18. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. How can your tongue become a tree of life? How can you begin to consider yourself primarily through God's perspective instead of the the important but lesser identifiers of this world? We go to God's wisdom in his word. We go to the tree of life given to us in Jesus Christ and we hold it fast. We lay hold of it. We consider it. We ponder it. We think about it. And this is so important because look again at Proverbs 15, 15. Or 15 verse 5, excuse me. A fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent. Why do we need to see that God's wisdom is a tree of life? Why do we need to see that his ways are ways of pleasantness? Because when God's word comes to us, it comes as instruction. It comes to curb our affections. It comes to discipline us how to think. It comes to teach us. Just as you don't arbitrarily communicate, hoping that people maybe do whatever they want with something, so too does God. God wants to do something with his word in your life. And that is to call you namely to his wisdom given to us in Jesus Christ and to let that shape everything else, to let that truth be the truth that you ponder and consider forever and ever. When it comes to our words, God's words in the gospel of Jesus are the primary shaping influence. 
What do I mean by that? Because the gospel of Jesus Christ, well, I'll, I'll rewind a little bit. If behind everything we communicate is ultimately a want of our heart, then to consider the gospel of Jesus Christ is to remind ourselves of all that redemption in Jesus has already provided for us. It is to begin any sort of communication with a reminder of what Christ has already given and what our words could never gain. We say quick-tempered and slanderous things to vindicate ourselves before others. But brothers and sisters, if Jesus has taken away our sin, our sin against a cosmic God, and paid our punishment for it on the cross, then we are vindicated before God himself. As Paul says, if it is Christ who justifies, who can condemn? We don't need to vindicate ourselves because in Christ we are vindicated. We say mean and hateful and spiteful things because we want those who have done harm to us to suffer. But brothers and sisters, Jesus has called us to love those around us because he loved us when we caused him to suffer. Jesus himself, more than that, has promised that those who do harm and do not find refuge in him, they will be punished not by your limited justice, but by God's perfect justice. You will not, with your words, outpunish what those who stand apart from Christ will face on judgment day. God will punish, but God will save those who come with words of faith and rest in Jesus Christ. We pander, we present in order to be accepted. This is one thing that I think of often when I'm about to post something, even on Instagram, which is wordless, but as they say, pictures are worth a thousand words, right? <laughs> of why am I posting this? And many times, it's to be accepted. It's to get affirmation from people. It's to get those notifications that there are 12 people who heart me today. But if that's how you gauge your acceptance, none of those hearts will ever be enough because as soon as you open those notifications, they go away and you're longing for another. But when we see what Christ has done to give us his righteous works on the cross, to robe us in his righteousness, we stand before God accepted finally and fully. Do you understand that when you realize what Jesus gives you freely in the gospel of grace meets our needs in such a way where we can actually safely do the hard work of thinking about why we are communicating and say, how does what Jesus provides change all of this? When we consider the word of God in the gospel, many of the motivating reasons behind quick and thoughtless words are eliminated at the bounty of God's grace. To ponder our hearts before we answer is to ultimately ponder how the gospel is already the answer. And when we consider this, it eliminates the desperation of our words. It gives us time to think. More importantly, it gives us time in that moment to actually worship to think about the wonderful mercy God has given us in Jesus Christ. And then it frees our words from trying to do something that our words would never do to doing what the gospel frees our words to do, which is to help others and to glorify God. Charles Spurgeon, the great British pastor, once said this. He said, to be burning at the lip and freezing in the soul is a mark of one far from God. Look again at Proverbs 15, verse 7. The lips of the wise spread knowledge, not so the hearts of fools. 
if we want to be one who spreads knowledge to those around us, we must be one with hearts that are not foolish, hearts inflamed and captivated with the wonderful truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus did everything required to save us from sin and restore us to God. We consider why we want, and we consider how Jesus meets all of his wants and all of our wants in the gospel. But the truth is, at this point, we still haven't communicated. We haven't sent tweets. We haven't replied to our spouse. We haven't tried to chastise our kids. So what comes next? What do we do after we look at why we want? What do we do after we drag it into the wisdom of God's word? Well, now you need more wisdom. In other words, the book of Proverbs is called the book of Proverbs because it's not the book of policy. If it was the book of policy, Proverbs would have this wonderful tone where it'd say, hey, in situation X, see page 23. So we look and we look at situation X, we see page 23. All right, this is a circumstance that demands items A, B, and C. So I'll do it. That's not how Proverbs works. It's calling us to think deeply, to do the work yourself of a craftsman, to examine how God's wisdom calls us to respond in the moment. And look at how much we need this in this seemingly contradicting, I guess it's not seemingly, it's straight up contradictory passage in uh, Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Don't you love Proverbs? Answer that fool or you'll be a fool. Answer that fool and you're a fool. (laughs) Many of us look at this as a contradiction of like, what does God know? But if we're realistic, doesn't this prove that God knows more than we ever know? That our world is rarely ever black and white. That no book of policy exists because there is no policy to explain our world like the wisdom of God. Of sometimes we are wise to respond with our words and sometimes we are wise to be quiet with our words. So which response do you practice? Well, this is where in the moment we consider what we want. We consider what God says about our want and then we wisely gauge whether to speak or not to speak. And so in conclusion, we're going to spend just a moment on each of those uh, options. So first, we're going to look at considering when not to speak. Look with me at Proverbs 17. So flip over a chapter from where we are in chapter 15. We'll look at the last two verses of 17, the first two verses of 18. So this is Proverbs 17, verse 27. Whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. I can't think of a more pointed verse (laughs) to our modern hearts than that. Because here we see, for a Christian, restraint in an age of excess. Cool spirit in an age of hot take, clickbaity headlines. And a desire to understand in a culture that calls first to be understood is a mark of someone 
who sees God's perspective. It is preferred over a quick-worded and fast-flowing opinion. Now, here is a real truth. I, this is, again, maybe I'm just describing our space-time continuum moment, but this is where I live. I live in the fast-paced, opinion-expressing world. I went to school for journalism in the age of social media booming. I had a sports talk show. We were supposed to tweet. We were writing papers. And then I went into a vocation where I use my words all the time. I am quick-worded. And many of you might think that's great. Ask my wife. It's often not. So I want to say, this is where I live. And God's word has something to say to me. God's word has something to say to all of us. Can you imagine the witness our church would have if we actually believed what is spoken here? That restraint, a cool spirit, and a desire to understand is better. Could I imagine what my social media presence would be like if that were true? I'm the most boring follow on social media right now because I've known I've had to preach this text. (laughs) And I realize most of what I say is better said to you in person here than to admirers that don't exist online. Look at the additional warning Solomon gives us later on in chapter 18, verses six through seven. A fool's lips walk into a fight and his mouth invites a beating. A fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are a snare to his soul. In culture, we are goaded all of the time to communicate in those scintillating, those scandalous, those loud ways, because what do we want? We want acceptance for what our hearts desire. And so we engage in these things. We respond to our kids, to our spouses, to our online community, in ways that are biting by worldly standards because we actually think it will provide and and eliminate what we fear. But did you see what it says? It is a snare to your soul. It is not just unloving to those who are outside. It is not just displeasing to the God who created your mouth to be a fountain of fresh water. It damages you. It is not for your good. But here is God's good for us. So if you're a person who is quick to speak, thoughtless, well-worded, what do you do? You have to build in these rhythms of thinking. One thing I do is when I've got an email or a text or a tweet or a Facebook message I want to respond to, I make my loving wife read it. And what she never does is say, you have thrust the sword through their heart. She says, you should probably sit on that for a little bit. I maybe wouldn't say that. Or maybe she says, I think this is a really good point that you should bring up to that person in private, not for all of their friends to see on Facebook. Because the truth is, here's another motivator to her heart. If we're willing to say it on Facebook and not in private, it's because we want the accolades of the others and we don't actually care about the individual. But here... We check those, and we consider them. And here's where we need the gospel to have freedom to say something by saying nothing, because our culture has developed the idea that silence is always violence. 
that if you aren't the first to respond, if your response is not emotive enough, or if you respond emotively on the wrong side, then you are in the wrong. But look at what Proverbs says in Proverbs 17, right here, that we just looked at in Proverbs 17, 27. Whoever restrains his words has knowledge. He who has a cruel spirit is a man of understanding. When culture views us as silent and not responding to the goads to extract our words, it thinks that you are dumb. It thinks that you are unintelligent. But what scripture says is in those moments, you don't get to believe what culture says about you when God says if that gospel silence is rooted in a reliance on his word, you are saying more in your silence than you could ever say with your words. You are saying that God's word is truth. You are saying that I know how to rely on the Lord more than I rely on culture. And remember back in Proverbs 15, look at how Solomon ends the plane in the last verse of that chapter. The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom, and humility comes before honor. In a chapter that's all about our words, it ends with humility before honor. Our communication is often about our honor. But it says whoever communicates loudest, quickest, fastest gets honor. But here it's the one who lives in the fear of the Lord, who humbles himself and trusts that what Jesus says about you is greater than what the world says about you. You'll receive the honor from God. And I hope that for those who genuinely follow Jesus, that is a worthwhile cause So before you speak, before you post, before you tweet, consider how humility and the fear of the Lord might give you pause. Now at staff meeting this week, we were looking at our text, and just about everyone we read this, we're like, this is easy, we'll just never say anything ever again. We'll be this monastic community that just shuts up. But here's the wonder of God's wisdom, is God's wisdom gives us The freedom to say nothing when the world calls us to say something. But God's wisdom also gives us the boldness to say something when the world wants you to say nothing. And this is the last point today. Considering when to speak. We see a lot in Proverbs the warning of too many words. But look at the role of right words. Proverbs 15, 1 and 2. A soft answer turns away wrath. But a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouth of the fools pour out folly. Look again at verse 7. The lips of the wise spread knowledge, not so the hearts of fools. Verse 23. To make an apt answer is a joy to a man, and a word in season, how good it is. Sometimes we must speak. Sometimes we speak on things that are unpopular by cultural standards. But there we rely not on culture's acceptance of it, but on Jesus' acceptance of us and how that gives us boldness to therefore be rejected by the world. To be seen as weird or awkward, for the good of the other person, for the benefit of society, for the glory of God, we can speak where speaking is often uncomfortable. Yet when we do so, our words are to be noticeably distinct from culture. Because we realize if Jesus has solved all of our greatest problems, we have set aside issues of desperation. We have set aside uh, fanaticism. We have sent, set aside this 
frantic pace of communication. If God loved us when we were the enemy, we can be loving to those who are also our enemies. And we also realize that behind the desperate words that people use to communicate in our world, even if it strikes us and it hurts us, behind their desperate words is a desperate need. A need that you have that perhaps you can provide in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Where it's cheap and easy to talk, we probably shouldn't. And when it's costly to talk, it's probably when we should. But when we do speak, our speech should be seasoned with wisdom from above. Look at how the Apostle James says this. And think of when you do speak. Even if it is for a right cause, does it pass through this framework? Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So when we speak on issues that God has perhaps called us to speak or on issues that are closely related to where God, the gospel frees us to speak, does your speech match this speech? Does your speech line up with Jesus's speech? Every rotten log echoes with the exact same hollow thud when you smack it. And every Christian living in Christ should carry the same note of heaven when culture smacks us. We speak not according to our righteousness. We speak according to Christ, not out of our own pride or cultural position, but from God's glory and from an eternal perspective. Proverbs 21, 29, we're warned that a wicked man puts on a bold face, but the upright gives thought to his ways. When we speak, we speak not from our own false sense of boldness. We thoughtfully consider what Christ has done for us and we stand in Christ's boldness, both in his strength and in his gentleness. So what are you to do? To speak or not to speak? Regardless of how you answer that question, you might answer it in a biblical way and find culture, your neighbors, or even your family to be opposed to how you've responded. But remember, if we're trying to do this in a way which is biblical and honors God, that word you speak is a tree of life that shelters you from the heat and shields you from the storm. At the end, we rely fearfully on the Lord who is king of all of our words. And we speak out of that wonderful assurance of grace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you give us pause in the gospel in a world that fills podcast timelines and comment sections, neighborhood bulletin boards, car rides home, I pray that our hearts are filled with the gospel before our mouths are filled with words. I pray that you give us the wisdom to be craftsmen with our responses, to consider the 
material of the gospel, which provides for us all of our needs and help us understand then how the gospel meets our needs before we even articulate them. Lord Jesus, I do pray for our church, in our city, in our day, that we would be known distinct for our words, that Christ would be seen as immensely satisfying because we recognize what he's done to save us. We pray all of this not only for our own souls, we pray all of this for the souls of those who would see the beauty of Christ in our words, and more importantly, that they would see the glory of God as the greatest good in this world. We pray all this in your name. Amen.